the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to episode 18, the final episode of series 2 of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean and I'm joined today by Paul Gosling. Paul, we've made it to the end. How are you? Wow, what a what a relief to get there. <laughs> ah, that was a hard bit. That is certainly <laughs> So today, Paul, you, you have a conversation, and it's pretty good that we put this conversation as the last episode, because it's about a summary of the discussion that we've had to date through the other 17 episodes. You talk with Anne Watt. Can you tell us what organisation Anne is involved in and, and their role? Yeah, Anne has recently been appointed to head up a new institution in Northern Ireland, and one which I think is desperately needed, has been desperately needed, and that is the Pivotal Think Tank. It's the first time there's been a think tank for Northern Ireland. She's a former senior civil servant, uh, born in Belfast, um, has lived for quite a long time in England. She was uh, a senior civil servant in the Cabinet Officer. Uh, an economist by background and someone who is making waves really in terms of demanding that Northern Ireland moves towards an evidence-based policy making system, one which actually listens, thinks about the data and operates on the basis of improving the competence of government on the basis of what the data says. Yeah, that'd be an incredible idea. <laughs> it's, something, it's something that you'd think we'd have been doing for a while. It's interesting that Anne's conversation comes following Seamus's last week, Seamus McGuinness, who, who talks about ESRE having 130-plus staff who, who are doing this type of work on behalf of the Irish government. And Anne's talking that Pivotal's just starting, it's fighting its feet. But it did a, a report last year that was really interesting and showed some stark facts, I think. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the health waiting lists, it is absolutely astonishing that for a population size so much smaller than the other parts of the United Kingdom, particularly so much smaller than England, yet numerically, we've got a much, much longer waiting list than England. I mean, just to repeat that, I mean, it's astonishing. Northern Ireland is this small jurisdiction within the United Kingdom, and yet numerically, the waiting list for health services are much longer than they are in England. I mean, that is just such a scandal. And it was something that uh, was being ignored by mainstream political conversation until Pivotal came along and mm. pointed out the obvious, really. Yeah, the figures are stark. We'll hear them in the conversation in a minute. And goes on to talk about the challenge. I suppose there's values and coalition work and that we have here in Northern Ireland, but she also said there's a real challenge in that. Yeah, and, and it's... Um, a shadow of a conversation that we started out with, where we spoke with Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government, which is a UK-wide think tank, but uh, and is one of the other organisations that looking at what's happening in Northern Ireland. Uh, and the point that Jess made, and which Anne uh, re re repeats, is the fact that there are challenges around five-party government. Yes, we need it. But I mean, if you look at what happened with the renewable heat incentive, the fact that we had five-party government didn't protect us from failures within the system. Uh, and my own view is that perhaps we've moved on a bit too quickly from thinking about the lessons from the renewable heat incentive. We had a report, and I'm not sure that the, the political systems of Northern Ireland, that Stormont, the governance of Northern Ireland, has actually is yet on track to, to learn the lessons and implement the lessons from the RHI scandal. OK. Let's hear the full conversation with Anne. 
listeners will not necessarily be very much aware about what Pivotal is or how it came about. So do you want to explain a bit about what it is and why it is? Yes, very happy to. So Pivotal is a new independent think tank for Northern Ireland. So it's focused on public policy and it, its aim is to help improve public policy in Northern Ireland. So it's got a strong emphasis on research and evidence and on using evidence better in public policy. Now, so Pivotal um, is uh, really important to say that it's independent of government, so um, completely separate from government and also completely separate from politics as well. So Pivotal doesn't have any political alignment to a political party or to any political ideology. So our underpinning values are ones of independence, of using evidence, of being inclusive and accessible, um, and about being ambitious and hopeful actually about the future of Northern Ireland as well, uh, and, and trying to influence policy makers um, in the civil service and politicians to make better policy, which will make outcomes better for everyone across Northern Ireland. And how did it come about? So, um, Pivotal has been, I suppose, thought about for several years by a small group of people who recognised the uh, need for more thinking outside of government about public policy. So, many people listening would know that think tanks are a common feature elsewhere in UK and Ireland and across the world, you'll get plenty of public policy think tanks, but actually there, there weren't any currently existing think tanks in Northern Ireland. And so uh, a group of people who have now become the, the board of Pivotal uh, were de developed the idea um, and then uh, built up a, a board and a, a reference group got the, the organisation established as a, as a company and were in the process of getting registered as a charity and then um, recruited me as the director last summer, and I've been in the post since last September. So really we're at the very initial stage at the minute. We're a small team, there's myself and an administrator, and we're, we've got a research manager starting just next week, which is great to be building up the team. We are very small, but we hope to grow. That's all subject to getting funding in place to enable us to employ more staff. Um, so, you know, we, we, we want to build Pivotal up, we want to have an impact and an influence and be a positive voice in Northern Ireland. And for yourself, you, your former senior civil servant who worked in the Cabinet Office in England. Yeah, that's right. So I grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast and then studied over in England, studied economics, and then I went into the civil service in the Treasury in the mid-90s, that would have been. so. I was in the Treasury for about 10 years in the in the Gordon Brown years. Uh, and then after that, I was in the Cabinet Office for four years and the Home Office as well for a short time. So I've got, I've got lots of experience in policy making and policy delivery. Um, I've got a, a background in economics, so I'm really passionate about using evidence better to influence policy. So um, getting better policies in place so that we can try and get better outcomes for for people in their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, so, you know, evidence-based policymaking was very much s central to what I did in my civil service days. Um, and that's definitely something I want to bring to Pivotal. Um, just more recently, I was the head of the Electoral Commission in Northern Ireland. So I did that for the last five years, having moved back from London to Belfast. 
And before we go on to the findings of your own research, uh, just to go back to the issue about Pivotal, that's got the backing of the universities here, I think, hasn't it? That's right. So we have a partnership with Queen's University and Ulster University, which is very valuable and helpful to us. So um, we're, we're separate from the university, so we, we are a completely independent organisation with our own governance, but we're, we have an academic partnership with Queen's and with Ulster University. Um, in practice, that means they are very uh, generous to us in their support. So we have an office, which is currently at Queen's in the graduate school there. So we have an office in Queen's and uh, our administrators post is funded by the two universities. And also really importantly, we have access to university staff. So we do joint events, uh, joint pieces of work with the two universities. And that's really helpful for us and hopefully for them too, as they think about how they as, as academic institutions can have more influence on public policy and public life. Now, even if listeners haven't heard of Pivotal or haven't recognised the name, that what they will be aware of probably is your initial research findings, one of which did hit the headlines because you showed the scale of the, the length of the waiting lists and waiting times in Northern Ireland compared with those in the rest of the UK. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Sure, yeah. So our first report was looking at the public policy challenges in Northern Ireland. So we wanted... As a, as a new think tank and having just launched, we wanted to do an overview report of what are the big challenges facing Northern Ireland in public policy. Um, and that was published in November 2019. It's called Moving Forward, Putting Northern Ireland on Track for the Future. And it's on our website if anybody wants to have a look. Um, and it looked at six areas. So it looked at uh, the economy, health and social care, education, poverty and disadvantage, climate and biodiversity and community relations. And just in a, in a quite a straightforward, simple analysis of data that was already published, we um, concluded that really Northern Ireland is not in the place where we would want to be. Um, our indicators and our outcomes are poor in many areas. Um, and also, I think a really significant finding was that we're not on track for the future either. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not heading in the right direction. and really significant and urgent policy changes needed. And that, that was published in November. So that was when the assembly was uh, still not in place. And so really, it was quite a stark message to um, to politicians and public, the public and anyone else uh, reading the report that we needed urgent action, we needed urgent change to get policy on track. And um, the particular uh, waiting list data you were you, you mentioned there, Paul, was um, looking at people who had waited more than a year for planned care in Northern Ireland. And really, we found that, um, again, using published data, so this is already data, data that was already out in the public domain, but I suppose maybe the way we presented it uh, just brought the point home. Um, but, you know, in Northern Ireland, uh, last no so last November, so the data will have changed slightly now, and, of course, will have changed again because of the current COVID-19 situation. But... Back in November, there were 120,000 people in Northern Ireland waiting more than a year on a health waiting list for planned care. And that compared to only 1,100 people in England waiting more, waiting more than a year. So, you know, when you think about the comparative size, size of the population, England is clearly, you know, so much bigger than Northern Ireland, but they've got far, 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 far fewer 
people waiting for planned care for that length of time. And so I think that that was really that was a really stark uh, finding in that report, and it did get um, quite a bit of media attention, which I think you know that that's helpful because I think um, putting putting data out, putting information out, informing people about what's going on is is one of the I think the key roles for for a think tank. But I think as well, really important to say that we don't just want to say here's a problem and here's a problem and here's another problem. We want to say, and here are some solutions. So as we move forward, we want to be very focused on how do we solve problems rather than just identifying problems. And of course, in a sense, in terms of the health service here, there are solutions available which are instilled in the Bengoa reforms, but those have not been implemented, partly because there was a a three-year uh, suspension of the institutions, but it did feel even before the institutions came down that there wasn't the commitment to implementation, at least at the speed necessary in terms of health service reform. Yeah, I think one of the one of the findings in our our second report, which I think Paul, you'll probably come on to, but um, we we looked at how government has worked in Northern Ireland, um, and overall we concluded that the government had had not functioned that well even in the periods when Stormont was up and running. And one particular aspect of that, I can talk some more about the more detail of the um, other findings in our report about government, but one particular aspect about that was that there's been a, a failure at Stormont to make tough decisions. So to make the difficult decisions about, say, reform in health and social care, which might mean reconfiguring services so that... Um, particular aspects of healthcare happen in specialist centres rather than in a wider set of um, hospitals across the country. So there's been a reluctance to take the tough choices, which might not be popular, but actually would deliver a better health service in the longer run. And so I think that's one of, that, is a, that is a feature of how government has worked at Stormont, that, that failure to take the difficult choices and maybe the politically unpopular choices but the choices which are needed to bring about a better service overall, which will lead to better outcomes. Now, in the first of in the health across the board, in in the first of the podcast interviews, I spoke with Jess Sargent of the Institute for Government, and one of the things that Jess was saying, if I understand correctly, is that having a five-party coalition can make it actually more difficult to make tough decisions. Do you think that's a a reasonable perception? Um. I think, yes, I think certainly having a, a five-party co- coalition makes making government work more difficult. I think that is definitely correct, and that's certainly something that would come out in our good government report. Um, I think w- what what you have is uh, government departments that might tend to work in, in silos even more than uh, governments do generally. You know, silo working in government is a, a problem that is common everywhere really it's it's something which all governments struggle with but i think it's particularly difficult for the northern Ireland executive because you've got governments headed by different ministers from different parties and uh, with without a clear common purpose um and i think uh, so you get that you get that siloed approach made even worse by the fact that the ministers are from from different parties who may have opposing views on things um, does it mean it make, make it more difficult to make tough choices? Yes, it may do because tough choices may have different impacts in different areas and um, 
you know, particular ministers may be defending their geographical area. Um, and so they may be reluctant to do something which would be politically unpopular for their geographical area, but actually it's something which would be important for Northern Ireland as a whole in terms of delivering a better health service in this example. And perhaps also coalition means that you have to sometimes revert to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, I think I think that that's that, that that's probably right as well. You um yeah, you, you end up with what everyone can agree about, which may not be actually the best choice. It's just um as you said, the the, the, the choice that everyone can get um you can get everyone behind. Um so I think you know, five party coalition, you know, that is that is what we, we, we have now. That's you know coming out of the Good Friday Agreement. I think it's really important to say, and we tried to emphasize this in our good government report, that having that co- having that coalition in place, having government in place in Northern Ireland at all is a great achievement. You know, it is it is so much better than what went before. Um I think what we've seen is we have um uh, an institutional framework that gets the diversity of views that we have in Northern Ireland working together. Um, but what it may not do is deliver good government. You know, it delivers some kind of government, but maybe not government that works that well. Um, so as a as an ongoing work in progress, there's lots of ways that the government stormant the government at Stormont needs to improve how it works and you know um, I think the big the big thing in our good government report was the, the, the need for a, a real change in the culture at Stormont and how the parties how the the parties work together and how the departments work together so that there's much more of a sense of a common purpose, um, so that there's there's more planning for the long term, more long term policy making that's making good decisions that set us on track for the future. And how do, um, and how do we achieve tough choices are addressed? How do we achieve that culture change? Um, I think one thing that that should help and is um, in the government's plans is the, the program for government. So this joint commitment about what government's going to deliver. If you think about governments elsewhere, they get elected on a manifesto, and so people vote for them, and they they know that this government's going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, whereas in Northern Ireland, you you have the mandatory coalition, which is a combination of parties elected on different manifestos. So um, they come into government and they don't have that clarity of vision about what they're going to do. Hopefully, the programme for government will help to set out across the board what the, the executive's priorities are. Um, and if, if, that is a, if that is a genuine um, set of objectives for the government, they're saying these are the 12 areas or whatever it ends up being. These are the 12 areas that we think are important um, and they genuinely will um, uh, focus their department's work on those things, including working across different departments to make sure those objectives are met. Then I think that can be that can be very, very helpful. That does depend a bit, though, on the objectives included in, in the, the programme for government. I, I have concerns about whether all the objectives are fully thought through and whether they create some perverse incentives within there. Um, that is the problem where you've got very broad policy objectives, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, I think there are there are lots of um, there are lots of potential problems with the programme for government. I, I think overall, I think it is a good step in the right direction. I think it needs to be developed and refined. And really importantly, it needs to be the genuine 
set of objectives that the government are jointly um, is jointly bought into and committed to. So I think it's a I would see it as a really use a really useful step in the right direction, but one that needs to be um, yeah one that needs to be refined as time goes on. So for example, making sure that um, yeah ma making sure that the outcomes are 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 right for what. Uh, people want to see in terms of improvements in Northern Ireland across public services, making sure that the, the, the data is appropriate and relevant and timely and all of those things. So I think it's it's certainly not perfect, but I think it's a useful tool and a good step in the right direction. Now, what we've been talking about so far broadly is the the policy framework and the the way that the parties can work together, but that's only in the sense half the the, the challenge, because the other half is actually around basic competence of the administrative service, and your work has coincided with the RHI inquiry findings, which suggest that actually, perhaps levels of government aren't operating at the level of competence required. Yeah. So. Um... The RHI report, which actually has rather uh, ended up being very, very quiet, really, compared to what we were expecting, largely because of the COVID-19 situation being such a, a huge issue at the time. Um, but the RHI report, clearly very, very important in looking at what happened with that particular scheme. Um, and yes, you know, um, the report talked about a, a multiplicity of errors and omissions, you know, so so uh, mistakes in the design of the scheme, which were not spotted by civil servants who were doing the initial work, not spotted by more senior people, more senior civil servants, not spotted by um, other departments or the regulator, not spotted by, by ministers or special advisors or by the assembly in its scrutiny and the um, committee or in the assembly as a whole. So yeah, I mean the uh, the report said that a uh, um, multiplicity um, of errors and omissions. So yes, blame was I think set at many people's doors. Uh, the overall reading of the report, or certainly my overall reading of the report, would 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 be very much that it seemed that um, most of the blame went on on the civil ser servants involved. Um, and I know there are clearly as actions coming coming out of that about that specific situation, but also about about competence in the civil service. Um, I think the the the, the big thing I'd say on the the competence issue within the civil service is the need for more um, specialists within government. So, you know, so the need in this case for uh, specialists who understand. Um, procurement better, uh, project management, um, energy policy, the more technical and scientific aspects of that. The, the traditional civil service model is one of generalists, you know, people who um, might work on education for a few years and then might work on energy policy and then might work on um, infrastructure, you know. So it's uh, much, much less about using specialists with expert knowledge. And I think what one clear recommendation from the RHI report is recognizing where you where the civil service doesn't have the skills that it needs and either training its own people up so that they have those skills or getting external people in. Um, the overall message from the report, I think the, the very 
in, in Sir Patrick's introductory remarks, he talked about the RHI Vena project too far for Stormont. Um, it was just too complex, um, too technical, uh, and you got the sense that the there wasn't a full understanding of it, and uh, an, an increasing number of people didn't understand the detail, but hoped that somebody else did. And actually, that's a completely unsatisfactory situation when you're talking about so much public money. It seemed to me that the one element of what happened around RHI that, that didn't really get sufficient public attention was the fact that we have, with the Northern Ireland Civil Service, uh, a, a structure of administration that really seems quite insular. It's insular yeah. from the British Civil Service, it's not part of the Home Civil Service, it's insular yeah. from the Republic of Ireland's administration, yeah. and in a sense doesn't bring in talent from elsewhere and doesn't learn lessons from elsewhere. Is, is, is my interpretation correct in that, do you think? I think that's a completely fair point. Um, I've always thought that organisations that have a flow of people in and out are much more healthy because you get the new ideas and new talent and new energy coming in and then you get the people going out who you know might go out on a secondment for a couple of years or something and they learn things outside they see how a different organization works they get a different perspective and they bring that back when they come back to the organization so um i think the civil service would definitely benefit from having a much more outward looking focus of having people coming in from industry or from the voluntary sector and having the civil servants going out and doing you know going and working in the voluntary sector or in education or in business or whatever it is and learning from those different organizations seeing how uh, uh, seeing how or different organizations work how leadership works in different organizations getting different technical skills um also seeing how how public services are delivered on the ground. I think all of that would be really helpful for the Northern Ireland Civil Service, as well as building the links with um, the rest of uh, the UK and Ireland, getting um, interchange opportunities. I suppose one of the, you know, there's just a practical issue there about um, geography, and it's difficult for people to uproot themselves and go and work somewhere else. Uh, but I think there would definitely be benefits from that. But it also requires a culture change, doesn't it? Because I, I have the perception that when people from outside have come into the Northern Ireland Civil Service, yeah. there has been a sense that, well, they're not one of us. They haven't come from the same background that we have and they haven't, been, yeah. they haven't felt entirely welcomed. Right, OK. Um, I think that, do that, that, that definitely needs to change because I think um, any organisation that thinks it hasn't got things to learn from other people is probably... Um, you know, really falling short because we've always got things to learn. We've always got ways that other people can challenge us. Um, and hopefully we've all also got ways that we can help other people as well. So I think just having much more of this, a culture of recognising that um, where everyone should be, every organisation, every individual, every team should be thinking, how can I continually get better? How can I improve? And certainly one of the ways I've seen individuals and teams and organisations improve is, is by, by being much more open and willing to learn from others um, and have those interchanges with others. At the core of everything we've said today, Anne, it's about the, the lack of evidence-based policy making in Northern Ireland. So the big question 
is, all right, Pivotal will play a part in creating that environment. The Institute for Government is keen to play a part in that, but that isn't sufficient. So, so how do we strengthen and broaden the policy conversation leading to those changes that we both recognise are needed? Yeah, I think, first of all, I'd say uh, it's about a, a culture change within government and being more open to outside influence. So we just talked about... Um, the Northern Ireland Civil Service being more willing to have people come in from outside and to have its own people go, go out on secondments and learn from other organisations and so on. But I think as as well as that, in, in terms of day-to-day -day work right across the board in the civil service, there needs to be much more of uh, an openness to ideas from outside. So ideas from, um, from think tanks like Pivotal or from academics or from um, business organisations or the voluntary sector or, or indeed members of the public. I think, um, just to go back to RHI, one of the absolutely uh, tragic things about the whole RHI situation was that the the whistleblower was not listened to. Um, you know, that she was an outside voice. She was actually a really persistent outside voice, but, she, but her voice was um, seemed to have been dismissed. And not listen to and I think that's a, that's just one example of where um, you see the civil service not having an openness to outside influence and and, 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 and not wanting to um, open up that policy making process so I think there's a need for um, that that culture change with within government to be much more open and much more willing to involve external voices um, but then I, I and That's just to just to interrupt a second, I mean that is equally yeah. true for the political parties, isn't it? Because the whistleblower didn't only contact the civil service and be ignored; they also contacted yeah. the minister's office and was ignored. Yeah. So I, yes. So I think um, when I talk about a culture change in government, yes, I, um, I, I mean in the civil service and with politicians as well. I think we have to we have to have a situation where there is not a monopoly on policy making amongst um, civil servants and politicians. They do not hold a monopoly on policy making. They are not the only ones with good ideas. Um, actually, external organisations and individuals kind of great ideas. You know, one of the things I've learnt in my years in the civil service was how much uh, value there was in getting out of the office and talking to people who were delivering services on the ground, service users, um, people who understood the day-to-day -day issues much more than me sitting in an office in Whitehall. Um, that was my experience as a civil servant in, in London, and I think you know that that uh, has got to be true for government here as well, whether it's civil servants or politicians. There is so much value in listening to um, and uh, understanding the perspectives of people outside who may actually have far more expertise and far more insights about, about how policy works in practice. So what next now for, for Pivotal? Um, so at the minute we've, um, we've published those two reports which really were I suppose two I guess foundation stones in a way you know looking at what are the public policy challenges in Northern Ireland and looking at how government works in Northern Ireland. Um, we are thinking at the minute about a project which we're calling Vision 2040, which is all about how we want Northern Ireland to look in 20 years' time. So what sort of place do we want to live in in 20 years' time? So taking away the constitutional status question, 
what kind of place do we want this to be, you know, in terms of um, the economy, in terms of the health service, in terms of uh, in the environment, in terms of society and values. What, what kind of place do we want to be, do we want this to be? So that vision project will be very um, open and it'll consult a lot of people. We'll do uh, lots of research and engagement to get people's views. So we're, we're thinking about that project. Um, we're also starting to think about what uh, does COVID-19 mean for public services in Northern Ireland? You know, that's clearly a huge issue at the minute. And how, do, how is Northern Ireland going to best emerge from that situation? You know, we're COVID-19, um, sadly, um, it, is, it looks like it's going to be around for some time in terms of its impact on society and particularly the health service and the economy. Um, so how do we make the best of that situation? You know, Northern Ireland went into the COVID-19 situation with um, poorly performing public services in many ways. So how do we come out of that or get through that in a strong position as we can? So we're doing some initial thinking about that. Thank you very much indeed, Anne. Okay, that was the conversation there with Anne. Paul, just picking up on the point you made just before we heard the the interview that you did, the systems of governments that we have here, including the civil service, probably need to be refreshed, modernised, brought up to speed in some type of way. Yeah, I was very pleased to, to hear Anne talk about the need for structural change and also the fact that we need more diversity. Uh, we need to actually be willing to bring in people with the relevant expertise, and that clearly was uh, a lesson from RHI, you know, that we didn't have the experts in place in the centre of government, but also that we need more diversity. We need to actually bring in people who know what they're talking about, but also have experience for other systems. I mean, my observation is that perhaps the, the gene pool, if you like, of the Northern Ireland Civil Service is a bit too narrow. Uh, it's very good that we've now got uh, a permanent secretary in the Department of Finance that's coming from England. And perhaps we would be able to refresh our civil service if we brought in more people from elsewhere. But I think the point that Anne is making uh, very strongly, which actually is something that's come across all the interviews across the whole system, is the need for structural change, systemic change across the all areas that we've looked at. Mm. Okay, well, thanks, Diane, for taking the time to meet with you. To Paul, just to bring the the series to a, a conclusion, and you started talking about it there, I suppose it is really obvious, if you're piecing together the conversations that we've had with everyone, all 18 throughout this piece, you've just mentioned that systemic change is what's needed. And I think behind that systemic change, it needs to be evidence-driven as well. Absolutely. What I think is really perhaps significant is that we've had the Bengara review of the health service, which mm-hmm. said very similar things to a lot of other reviews had previously about the need for structural, deep-seated reform of the health service. And politicians, to be blunt about it, didn't have the courage to do it. Um, but what has brought about some of these changes now is COVID-19. There's a recognition that we've got to the absolute point where you have to reform the health service because otherwise it will simply collapse. I mean, it is pretty well on the point of collapse even before COVID-19 in terms of the length of the the waiting list, as we Mm. we heard from Anne there. Um, But actually, what Bengal was unable to do 
COVID-19 has, and we've seen the beginning of some really important structural changes to health service delivery. And we'll have to see now how the public responds to that when they find perhaps that the hospital that they would previously have gone to locally for local services, now they perhaps have to travel a bit further, but they will get higher quality specialist expertise and a more efficient system. We'll have to Mm. see now how the public responds to that. Okay. Paul, our conversations covered a whole range of issues, everything from social care and health that you were just talking about there, housing, education, economy, etc, etc. And part of the the conversation was the need for the data-driven or the evidence-driven conversation. But we were also, I think people also said, let's trust people, they make decisions and they show leadership. That might not be political leaders, but it could be people within the community. We talked about using citizens' assemblies and getting other voices as part of this process. Yes, that's right. I mean, and Citizens' Assembly has been a a really important mechanism for for achieving change in the South and also in France as well. And while the headlines have been about abortion reform and same-sex marriage, Citizens' Assemblies have also been very important in getting randomised general public involvement in looking at other challenging issues around the environment, climate change, carbon taxation. It's been really important in the Republic. It's been really important in France. And we have not got sufficiently far. I mean, of course, you know, one of the good things about New Decade, New Approach is the fact that there is a commitment to use citizens' assemblies in Northern Ireland now. It will be the first time it's done led by government. And we'll have to see how that goes. I hope personally that uh, it, it, it does actually provide a mechanism for, for bringing about change that has public acceptance. Okay. And I suppose we're doing all this in a, in a climate that is both uncertain because Brexit is yet to fully impact on us. We don't know how COVID's finally going to roll out or continue to impact on us. What we do know is that old certainties are still remaining here. There's some old certainties that need addressed. We need to still talk about the past. We need to talk about victims. We need to talk about how we reconcile what is a deeply divided society. These things still need to inform part of that discussion as well. Yeah, and uh, it might be a bit invidious to talk about any particular podcast after so such a long series, but I was particularly taken by some of the comments by Will Glendinning, uh, in one of the, the podcasts that got quite a lot of um, engagement from listeners and readers of the, the associated blog. And, mm. and Will was making the point that whatever you want to do in terms of the jurisdictional future, the constitutional settlement in Ireland, you can't duck away from dealing with the legacy of the past and the relationships between communities. And, you know, please, let's not just talk about two communities. We are multi-layered, multifaceted number of different communities you know it's not simply two communities there are lots of different strands within our society and that needs to be recognized and respected yeah we're not two homogenous groups there's communities of interest as much as anything else as well okay well i think that sums us that rounds us off for this series paul thanks a million for all your hard work on this series It'll stand the test of time, I think, a lot of these conversations, and they're really important to have, and we're delighted to really share them. So thank you for doing them. Well, it's been hard work, but, uh, yeah, it's been very enjoyable, um, very intellectually stimulating. And, you know, let's thank all the 18 interviewees, Mm. because it's been brilliant that 
there wasn't a single person, I think, that declined to be interviewed. Everyone that we wanted to interview, we interviewed. Uh, and they were willing to give their time and to make really interesting, valuable comments with expertise, which is part of what we've been talking about just now, bringing yeah. in experts. We spoke to the experts and they gave us their opinions. That's it. You have to value, not fear the expert. That's that's the way. So I thank you to everybody. So just to tell people what our next steps are, our next plans uh, for the Forward Together series. As you know, this is the end of series two. Series one has been brought together in a book by Paul Gosling. Paul, do you want to tell us a wee bit about the, the Ideas Project book that'll be ready in around September, October time? That's right. We've got the first draft done, but we need to update it because New Decade, New Approach came along and yeah. uh, rather sidetracked us because we hadn't expected that at that time. Uh, so the book will be rewritten, but broadly it brings together the ideas of all the interviewees from the first series. So they came up with lots of really insightful comments about how we can make our society better and how we can look to the future. And our feeling was it would be lost if that just went in, you know, back onto the internet as podcasts without actually having something physical that people could look at and think about even more. We don't want those thoughts just to be lost in the ether. We want people mm -hmm. to have the opportunity to look at them, to think about them, and also to see them contextualized in the sense that we have individuals who are saying some cases very similar things sometimes rather different things sometimes very different things and we wanted to put those next to each other so that readers could look at them and say actually that's really something i'm pleased to be thinking about yeah yeah well, well further discussion documents and we on, want to influence as well yeah you're right you're right and on that uh, we're holding a final panel event as part of good relations week in hollywell trust on Tuesday the 15th of September at 2 o'clock and we're going to do this a couple of ways we're going to have a panel of people in the room we can allow you a certain number of people in due to COVID-19 social distancing but we're also going to stream it as well so that we have a, a conversation that people can access and we'll of course release it as a podcast so Paul you're going to take part in that panel too absolutely yeah can't yeah. get me away from this good on you we'll confirm near the time who the other panellists are going to be as well but it's likely to be people who've already taken part in this most recent series so Thank you to everybody who stuck with us throughout and listened to all 18 episodes. Fair play. There's no medal, but I think you deserve one. And look, keep an eye out for the event on the 15th of September. Thanks to our funders and the Community Relations Council. Thanks to Emer Doherty for production support. And you never know, there might be Series 3. All right, chat decent. Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.